This program was brought to you by Eat on North. Eat on North is a casual restaurant where honest, uncomplicated food is served without pretension. Find Eat on North at hotelonnorth.com. This is Mike Edison, host of Art Senses of Seizures. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, please visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to Redig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Carmen DeVito. Um, my co-host Alice Marcus Krieg is out of town today, and I'm going to be flying solo. So we are the ladies of Groundworks Inc. We design and build gardens in and around New York City. In fact, our gardeners are furiously planting right now as we speak. Um, and our show aims to bring the culture to horticulture. So last week on the show, we gave you all a brief sort of introduction to the history of plants in cosmetics from ancient times and across different cultures. Today, we're going to continue with the Botanical Beauty series, which is running the whole month of October. But we're going to jump to the 20th century, and we're going to discuss the origin and development of Dr. Hauschka Cosmetics, a company that transforms rose petals and other natural ingredients into my favorite face cream. So I want to give you a little background about how, how I found uh, Dr. Hauschka's products. One day I was shopping at this sort of old school health food store in Brooklyn called Back to the Land, which has been there like since the 1970s and is still there in spite of a, a lot more competition <laughs> from uh, you know health food stores. Whole Foods is just like less than a mile away, but it's still going strong. Um, so there I was shopping and there was a rep from the company giving out samples of their products. And I'm a total sucker for free stuff. So I let her tell me about some of the products and I started sampling them, putting them on my face right there in the store. <laughs> um, so those of you who gardened or who work outdoors know like what a beating our, our skin takes, especially our face and our hands. And I had tried so many products over the years and they were okay. Nothing revolutionary. They worked. Um, but what got me hooked were the scents and in particular the rose, and also the texture of these products. It was like, it was unlike anything that I'd ever put on my skin before. In fact, it was after looking at the ingredients on the product label of that rose face cream and the other products that I bought that day that inspired this entire series. The labels were filled with ingredients whose names I could recognize. That was the amazing part to me. They were the botanical names of plants, some of which I had in my own garden. Um, so this this naturally piqued my curiosity as I was kind of amazed that cosmetics today could and would be made without resorting to the sort of chemical arsenal that we've become used to. And then I read about the influence of Rudolf Steiner on the founding of the firm, and I knew that it would make a really interesting story that we wanted to share with you. Now, to step back for a second and go back to last week's show, um, we talked about something called antimony, which was used in ancient cosmetics. And my good friend, um, Kevin Kolak, who happens to have a PhD in chemistry, um, 
kind of told me what antimony was because um, Alice asked me that question and I didn't know. And it turns out that it's an element, part of the periodic table of elements, and it's found in minerals and all compounds are toxic. So yes, those ancients were putting some toxic stuff on their faces, but we're going to stop doing that. Um, <laughs> so we, um, we have someone with us today from Dr. Hauschka, Mandy Vance, who is the director of education and events for the firm. And Mandy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy Monday. Thank you. So let me tell you all a little bit about Mandy. Um, Mandy joined the spa industry in Australia over 10 years ago as a a Sedesco-trained esthetician, qualified massage therapist, aromatherapist, and nail technician, instantly recognizing that the ever-changing beauty industry felt like home. Mandy has worked in and directed spas throughout Australia and New York and trained over 40 of the most prestigious five-star properties in Dubai, Hong Kong, Macau, Australia, and the continental U.S. Um, she's, she's bringing an experienced eye, a warm and informative training style, and a cliche love for Fregemite toast. Mandy has been part of the Dr. Hauschka family for over three years. So I'm very happy that you're able to talk about Dr. Hauschka today, Mandy, because I love their products. <laughs> They're beautiful, and I love hearing your story about how you first came in touch with the line because it's a story that so many people have, you know, like they just have one experience with it, and there's something different that grabs everyone every time, whether it's, you know, like the beautiful scent, like the natural aromas that come from it, especially as it relates to the rose products. Oh, Um, yes, and I had no intention that morning when I went to get my vegetables to be putting creams on my face, Um, but (laughs) it kind of was such a happy accident. So being that I totally love to geek out on you know, plant people or just people's histories. Um, Who was Dr. Hauschka? So Dr. Hauschka, I mean, he's such an interesting man. And aside from being the co-founder of Dr. Hauschka Skincare and Cosmetics, he had this amazing contribution to the alternative medicine community. So he was born in 1890. um, So he's dearly departed at this point in time. Um, But he was a chemist and a philosopher. He was from Austria, um, and he was just so connected to the human condition. And all of his research and his life was all centered around looking at how plants and minerals and metals could benefit the human well-being. And so he really looked at taking his medical practice and extending practical conventional medicine into the spiritual realm and the natural realm. Um, And there are a few different things that put him on the map. Um, One was called rhythmical processing and this process of being able to expose botanicals to all the natural rhythms that they find in nature and preserve it without the use of alcohol, which at that time it was just so revolutionary. I mean, it's still revolutionary, um, but it was sort of that practice that was able um, to put him on the map and create a laboratory called Vala, which he had in Germany, um, that's still there today. So there's, there's a huge, rich tapestry of history about Dr. Hauschka and about the entire brand. I know. That's what really attracted me. And and to put it in context, right? So this is the 1920s, right? At that point is just about the the time when um, they were able to fix nitrogen chemically. They were, they were able to use um, chemicals to, to sort of feed the fields. The rest of the world was going in a completely different direction than Dr. Hauschka, you know, which is what makes him so amazing as a pioneer you know it it seems kind of normal today that we would use natural products but he was really bucking the trend wasn't he he really was um and it's so interesting you know things like you were saying on your show last week 
you know, things started in like this very seemingly natural kind of way. But with the introduction of chemicals, things became so easy. And then with the Industrial Revolution, we could make, you know, small farms into really big farms and everything changed. So, you know, he really bucked the trend, to use your words. Um, And so he was a rebel, you know, and so I think what he was doing was really revolutionary. And it's something that now people are really, really starting to appreciate. And he was influenced by Rudolf Steiner, who was another pioneer. Can you, um, and, and Rudolf Steiner, he was a real Renaissance man and influenced a lot of different people and had his sort of hands in many, many fields. But he sort of um, really connected with Dr. Hauschka about biodynamics, right? The farming, the farming practices that in some places are still being used today. Tell us about Rudolf Steiner's influence on Dr. Hauschka. So Steiner had a whole framework on how to kind of deal with life with the Industrial Revolution and all the changes that were happening, Um, and especially as it related to farming as well, because everything, the world and the soil, was changing like as a result of the Industrial Revolution. So Steiner didn't really sit down and lay out what biodynamic farming was. Um, That actually came a little bit later. What he did do was he sat down with all of the farmers in Europe and he kind of gave some guidance and a groundwork of principles for them to consider and to be guided by as they went about their farming. Um, And it was actually the farmers that got together, took this information, and they created a formal approach, which is now known as biodynamic farming. Um, So that was really interesting. And so Hauschka really, you know, fed into this philosophy and he really liked the ideas that Stein had around biodynamic farming and a few other ways, just principles on living and life and well-being. Um, and so Hauschka actually, when he purchased uh, a plot of land in Nickwalden, which is where the company is still based now in Germany, um, it was actually this boggy meadow at the foot of the Schwabian Alps, and it was completely, completely useless. So you could just, you could not grow anything there. And over the course of many years, he began implementing biodynamic farmings, and the soil continued to improve. It became easier to work with. Um, and then all the biodynamic gardens that we still have there now were planted and they're still growing today. So it's like this living testament to how effective biodynamic gardening is. Um, and it was just so revolutionary. Like even the Ekvalden gardeners that were there at the time, they were extremely, extremely skeptical um, <laughs> <laughs> that anything would grow there. Um, and this was a long time before biodynamics were, were practiced so frequently. And we're starting to see it more now, especially with vineyards and um, some dairy farms. And I think that it will start to become a little bit more popular. Um, you know, organic is just so big now. So I think biodynamic is the next step. That's amazing. And so I... I I got the name of this show, uh, Pioneers and Rebels, right from your website, which I think is a is a fantastic website. Um, and in fact, at one point, Dr. Hauschka, I read on the website, and his wife were banned and imprisoned by the Nazis. Can you tell us a little bit about why that happened and, and how they survived and then ultimately settled on their farm there in Germany? Well, I told you, Hashka was a very interesting man. There's a lot of history (laughs) (laughs) with him and with this whole company. So Hashka, I mean, he was so inspired by Steiner. And Steiner came up with, you know, the biodynamic philosophy, but it's part of like a bigger thing called anthroposophy. And so it's like this huge um, idea about a way of living and spirituality. And Hauschka had many ideas that were directly opposed to that of the National Socialism. And so, you know, it was very individualistic thoughts. It was very mm. internationally orientated. It was very, you know, it was, it was pacifying. And so Hitler started speaking out against Steiner and radical ways of thinking such as anthroposophy. He shut down Waldorf schools. And then finally, 
anthroposophy was declared completely illegal in 1941, and so Hauschka's labs were all shut down, and him and his wife were arrested. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, so it's crazy. So there was a little bit of a hiatus um, with the laboratories, but, you know, after he was let out of jail and after everything died down and after World War II, Hauschka started up the lab again in 1946, um, and it was actually in this temporarily converted military barrack in Munich, and so he was supplying the hospitals there with homeopathic products. And then it was a couple of years after that that he finally moved to Eckwalden in Germany. Wow, that's an incredible story. I, I, yeah. <laughs> has anybody written his biography? Pardon? Has, has his biography been written in any formal way? or? There are a few books. Um, everyone has, it's not specifically just on Hauschka. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a few books that directly address his life. And there's some really good information on the website as well. Good. I, I find him really interesting and brave, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, so he founded what he called a pharmaceutical company, right? Walla. Yeah. Uh, with the mission, and I quote, to support the healing of humanity and the earth. Can you imagine a pharmaceutical <laughs> company making that their mission? That's that's very interesting. Um, and I also learned on the website that Walla is an acronym for warmth, ash, light, ash, which describes this rhythmic processing method that you described a little bit earlier that, that Dr. Hauschka developed. Can you explain to our listeners what that means? Yeah, definitely. So rhythmical processing is this way of integrating natural polar changes that we find in nature. So light and dark, warmth and cold, movement and calm. And he put all of that into an extraction process for medicinal herbs. And then he found that all these rhythmic changes enhanced the natural preservation and it was counteracting the decomposition process. And so they would start to keep for 30 years, which was amazing. So he started this whole team with anthroposophic doctors looking at creating a series of medicines based on these aqueous medical extracts. Um, and he needed bigger land, so he, he got to Ekvalden. He created all of his laboratories there. And so when he went to name the place, which is Vala, W-A-L-A, um, he wanted to name it after some of these qualities that played such a key role in the rhythmic manufacturing. And so that was you know, the warmth and the ash and the light and the ash. That's interesting. So basically what he's, he's sort of replacing the preservatives in, in medicines and in cosmetics, well, not cosmetics yet, with this, with this process, right? Is that the way of preserving them without adding all these chemicals? Exactly. And even without being able to use alcohol. So alcohol. it was really so phenomenal at that time that, you know, you could get all of these botanicals and you could preserve them in a way just by exposing them to the polarities of nature rather than using an artificial or even a natural preservative such as alcohol. Wow. And, I, and you really do feel the difference, um, as I was saying, in the texture of the products compared to most. Alcohol is pretty much in every cosmetic that you buy in some form. Exactly. And, you know, there's so many, I mean, um, alcohol is such an umbrella term as well. There are some alcohols that are good for the skin and some that are not so good for the skin. Um, And so we do use some alcohol in some of our products because not everything is aqueous based. Okay. Um, So sometimes like you will need uh, an oily extract that will need an alcohol to support it. But when it comes to a simple or not simple, but just an aqueous solution, then we are able to do that without alcohol. So we have some rhythmic conditioners that are a nighttime preparation that you can use and there's no alcohol in that and they're preserved with this rhythmical processing method okay so he was developing pharmaceuticals right basically medicines but then in 1965 
he uh, somebody new came into the picture, um, an esthetician named Elizabeth Sigmund. She wrote to Dr. Hauschka and she shared her ideas for plant based preparations for skin health. Um, so tell us a little bit about how that partnership developed and how that changed the company. I'm so happy that you're asking about her. So she was so critical in creating the Dr. Hauschka line. Without her, it probably would not exist in the form that it is in today. So, you know, Vala was created by Hauschka, and he was looking at extending that to skincare because skincare, um, I mean, the skin is like this internal reflection of what's going on inside of the body. And so what he did was he connected with Elizabeth Sigmund, who was kind of a pioneer of her own. So she had an anthroposophic background. She traveled around the world, you know, studying and looking at different botanicals and plants and healing remedies. And she wanted to bring that to skincare. And so they were able to connect and they started corresponding. Um, and they eventually got together, first in Switzerland and then in Germany, and started looking at creating this. Um, a skincare product and then later on it went on to become the cosmetics as well and so she just played such a critical role in developing that because it was all of her knowledge that she brought with her um, she was able to develop this entirely new branch of Vala and it's what we're best known for now. It's so interesting. I'm so glad. I'm so grateful that she mm-hmm. wrote to Dr. Hauschka. My, my, skin, my skin thanks her. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to you know, include her too because her name isn't you know, sort of on the marquee, as it were. Do you know what I mean? And she could be forgotten. Yeah, know? she's like the Elizabeth Arden of natural skincare, and yeah. her name just isn't <laughs> out there in the way that we really wanted to. You know, she just has had such a lasting impact on the company, and we still practice the classic treatment, which is this treatment that she came up with in 1967. She worked with Dr. Voda, who was the person who came up with lymphatic stimulation and lymphatic drainage, and she was able to incorporate that into our beauty treatments. And so there's this amazing head-to-toe two-hour treatment that we still practice today after so many years in 36 countries around the world. Okay, Um, where do you guys do that? (laughs) I want to (laughs) know. I can send you to some wonderful places in New York. Soho Sanctuary is one of them. Okay. Um, Yeah, it's beautiful. (laughs) Okay, so we have to talk, because this is a show about plants, we have to talk about the farms and your farmers, because that is absolutely critical to the company, to the function. Um, You grow, the company grows a lot of their own botanicals. Tell us how you cultivate them and, and what you're growing there. So, like I was saying earlier, so we have this plot of land that's at the foot of the Schwabian Alps in Eckwalden in Germany, and it's still the same land that Hauschka was on and where he started developing all of this biodynamic farming lands. So now we have over 150 different botanicals there. We have 4.5 hectares, and everything, everything is grown there. Sage, horse chestnut, roses, blackthorn, it's It's amazing. We have a lot of different things there, and a lot of them are used in our mother tinctures, which is what we call the rhythmical processing dilutions. Um, So we have a lot of the plants there, which we use in the Vala remedies as well as in the skincare. Um, But we also recognize that, you know, not everything will grow in Germany, in a very specific part of Germany. And so we really look to how the plant grows in nature and where things need to organically be able to grow itself and and produce the best possible version of of itself as a plant. So we do cultivate from all over the world and we have all these different farming projects. Um, But, yeah, we're still growing a lot of things 
um, in Germany. So it still ran as a biodynamic farm. Okay. Which is amazing, especially for a pharmaceutical company. Like, I don't know that there's any other businesses or pharmaceutical manufacturers that are grown and, you know, found on completely biodynamic land. So that's... I know, especially 50 years ago. It's just so, so revolutionary. I bet it's amazing. I assume that you've been there multiple times. I have, and I'm going back again next month, and I love it. So I've been there when we pick all the calendula as the sun is rising at 5 a.m., and there's still little dewdrops on all of the little um, petals. It's just, it's phenomenal, the care that goes into it, because, you know, biodynamic farming... You know, it's this totally, it's this totally organic process where yes. everything is done by hand and by eye. And so, you know, even when you're picking the calendula, there's a certain way that you do it with a certain level of consciousness. And you're like really looking at it and eyeing it for quality. And everything is just done by hand. It's, it's amazing. And it's, so it's a time-consuming process. It's not just, you know, it's everything is, it's, it's, it's just a completely different way of growing things. Right. It requires its whole, you know, it's, an, it's its own ecosystem. So you'll have your own beehives there. You'll have cows and sheep so you can have your own manure. Everything is done just within that plot of land. So nothing, you know, externally from the rest of the world is coming inside. It's about as pure as you can get. And everything just has, you know, such a high level of quality, whether it's looking at the seeds for their quality, the harvesting time, the way that we compost, the way that we dry things. It's it's amazing. I would love for you to send me some photos of the farm. Those I haven't been, I would love for it. And I'm going to share them with our listeners. Yeah. Would you do that, Mandy? Yeah, amazing ones on the website, <laughs> but I've got some really lovely ones too. Good, good. I love, yeah, I love seeing um, when I'm there at the farms, just seeing the way that they use natural to, to prop it, uh, natural ingredients to prop itself up. So like when you look at all the roses that we grow, they'll have garlic interspersed between all the rose plants because it naturally wards off aphids. Wow. Um, yes. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. And I, I do think of the Alps and, you know, Switzerland, Germany, that whole area is kind of being kind of pure. I don't know. It's sort of like a cultural thing, you know, like the yeah. the mountain air, the water, you know, like I just yeah. think of it as just already or naturally kind of beautiful and Exactly, (laughs) and Europe kind of has a little bit of a different focus than America does. I think that, you know, they've always been fairly naturally focused. And, you know, it's something that's like, it's almost like new and amazing here in the U.S. Yes. Um, Yes. But in Europe, it's just, it's a way of being, and it's like the right way of being and, you know, the best way to treat the land. So it's interesting just kind of comparing, you know, how up and coming and amazing and like buzzwordy it is here to be natural when it's like being the way that it always has been in Europe. I know. I recently came back. This summer, I went to Europe to see my family in Italy um, for three weeks, and I was all over. And just, you know, everybody drinks bottled water, right? The mineral water. And I know, and when I left New York, I was super tired. My body was like broken down, Mandy. I felt just exhausted and mentally and physically like burnt out. And after three weeks of eating organic food and drinking bottled water from all over Italy, I came back rejuvenated. I felt uh-huh. so much better, uh-huh. you know, and, and I think it's, just, it's similar, like you said, all over Europe, that you don't just take medicine, you don't just, you, what you put into your body is part of healing yourself, you know, and we're, we're getting that now, you know, but they, they knew it. <laughs> yeah, they knew it, exactly. You know? And I think, you know, in the U.S., I mean, in a lot of places, 
everything can be such a band-aid approach. Yes. You know, we're not always looking at long-term skin health or long-term internal health. It's just, you know, what will fix something right now. Yes. So I think it's nice to, you know, go to Europe and also to look at all these different skincare lines that are looking at the skin as this organ that needs long-term care, just not an overnight quick fix. Agreed. Well, we have to take a break. Stay on the line. Um, and when we come back, we're going to go um, talk some more about Dr. Hashka, the future and what's happening. Stay tuned to We Dig Plants. Take a sip from your chalice just Hi, I'm Brian Alberg, and I'm the executive chef at Eat on North in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts. Eat on North in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts is a casual restaurant where good, honest, uncomplicated food is served to our guests. Our restaurant is part of the hotel called Hotel on North, the newly opened boutique hotel in downtown Pittsfield. We source local ingredients from our neighboring farms and offer an all-day dining menu of flavorful American cuisine for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and on weekends we serve brunch. Our oyster bar serves up delicious shellfish and oyster samplers until 11 p.m. Check out our menu at eatonnorth.com and follow us on Instagram. Hi, welcome back to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. All the month of October, we're talking about botanical beauty, plants used in cosmetics and beauty products throughout time and today. And joining us today as our guest is Mandy Vance, who is the Director of Education and Events at Dr. Hauschka Cosmetics, which makes the most amazing um, face creams and products for your skin and for your insides. So, Mandy, we you hinted a little bit about how some of the botanicals... Um, are grown, you know, off of the farm in Germany. But some of them, I read, have to be sourced in the wild. Um, and one plant that I found really interesting that I was reading about was called Eyebright, which is, the botanical name is Euphrasia officinalis, which you use in eyeliners and mascaras. Tell us a little bit about the process of collecting and using that plant. Eyebright is beautiful. It's this beautiful little plant. It's heliotropic. It moves with the sun. I kind of... Sort of like me, I'm an Australian. I like need to be in the sun all the time, so mm-hmm. I really like this little plant. Um, and it can be used in any of our eye products um, because it has amazing flavonoids and tannins. So it's great for like these soothing and toning and fortifying qualities. Um, and some of these qualities, you know, we feel like we can't always get from cultivated plants. So sometimes you want the qualities from a plant as it lives in the wild. Mm-hmm. Um, so we look to being able to, to try and wildcraft some of our plants uh, and then also source them from cultivation projects as well. Um, so we try and do a little bit of both, especially with Eyebright. So part of it we will collect from the wild, so we're gathering all of these qualities that come with this plant that's naturally occurring. Mm-hmm. And then also um, in terms of not, you know, wanting, wanting to be sustainable and not wiping out all of the eyebrows that we can find. <laughs> Then we exactly. do have to cultivate some of it. So right. we try and use a little bit from, from both buckets. Well, where does it naturally grow? Where does eyebright naturally grow? I believe that it grows in Europe. Okay. Is it like a mountainous, like a 
Mountain. I know, I do know that farmers do not enjoy it growing in their fields. <laughs> it grows very, very rapidly and ah. it kind of sources all the minerals from all of the grass and from all of the soil and uses it for itself. Ah, <laughs> its I host. see, I see. So okay. around farming land. Ah, okay. And um, it's used in eyeliners and mascaras. Is it a tinting agent or is it um, like, what, what qualities does it have that makes it useful in eye products? It's very soothing, it's very toning, and it's very fortifying, especially for keratin. Ah, um, okay. So we also use it in a product called Isolus, which is a specific eye treatment. Um, you pour this liquid solution onto some little cotton pads, and you lay back and have it on your eye area, and it has this amazing kind of toning quality to it. And it's really fortifying, especially for the skin that's around the eyes. Okay. Um, and it's very soothing as well. So maybe if I put this on my eyelashes, I might actually make them look a little lusher because mine are like really puny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that could happen. But also part of it, too, is, you know, the, the eyes, this, you know, membrane yeah. that you kind of have to be careful around. Yes. And so we yeah. always want to use things that we can ophthalmologically test. And yes. so eyebright is something that, you know, it fits with the eye area very readily. So there's going to be no irritation. You know, we're not just looking at that you know, physical quality that it's going to give, like it's going to plump up your lashes or it's going to do this, but it's how it interacts with the part of the body that it's, that it's um, working with as well. So okay. we want something that's nice and gentle around the eyes. Yes, exactly. That's a, it's, you have to be very careful with products around the eyes. <laughs> that is so true. Okay, so we have to talk about roses because I've been sort of gushing about the rose cream forever to everybody. Um, and it also is one of your signature botanicals, right? It, it's included in a lot of different forms in, in the products. Um, so tell us about the process of how the roses go from the farm to the finished product. Cause you get a lot of different things from the rose petals. Yeah, we do. So we use all of these different parts of the rose. So we capture multiple representations of the rose in our products. So we use the essential oil because it captures the personality of the rose. We have the rose petal wax. We have rose, hip, rose hips and rose distillate as well. Um, actually, in your favorite product, Rose Day Cream, there's 35 biodynamic roses in every single tube, which is really beautiful. Oh, wow. So, I have to think about that now. <laughs> <laughs> It's beautiful. It's like receiving a bunch of flowers every it time. It is. It is. And when I when I put that on my face, I, I'm also like a. I don't like musicals, but I love the sound of music, which sounds completely corny. But I love that musical. <laughs> and when I put that on my face, it's like I'm Julie Andrews in that alpine meadow, and I'm like spinning it. around. <laughs> That's oh, what, it was like so a nice. trance. It was. It it's it's tr- like you're breathing in a bouquet of roses. It is. You know? And you know, there's so many artificial scents out there. I, I don't yeah. use a lot of perfume and I hate artificial scents. I'm like actually kind of allergic to them. Um, and when I, when I find something that really, you know, I'm a garden designer by profession. When I find something that really smells like it's supposed to smell like what it's based on, uh-huh. I'm blown away. It's you know? beautiful, yeah, and we use the damask rose primarily, which is the most fragrant of all of the roses, um, and so we have all these different farming projects around the world so we can gather as many organic and biodynamic roses as we need because you just need so so many so roses much. to go into, you know, you need a thousand roses to go into one mill of rose essential oil, which is ridiculous. You just need so much of it. Yeah. And we're the world's largest consumer of roses um, for a cosmetic products. So wow. we have all, uh-huh. Yeah. So we need, we need a lot of roses. So 
So we have all these different farming projects around the world in Ethiopia, Bulgaria, Turkey, Afghanistan, a bunch of them. So we can, you know, have all these ongoing relationships with farmers in all of these different places so we can gather as much as we need without just wiping everything out all over the globe. We still need lots of roses for everyone else. Yes. And and that's, that leads me to my next question. I'm glad that you uh, mentioned that. So the using roses extracts and oils you know, it's not a new thing. It's been used for millennia, lots of civilizations, the Romans, the Greeks, you know, the Ottoman Empire. Um, they used it for medicine, for food as well. And you mentioned some of your projects, and I, wanna, I want to talk to you about that because it's such an interesting thing that you're doing. Um, we know that in Turkey and Afghanistan and lots of places there, there's a lot of opium being grown, Right. And because it's such a lucrative crop for the farmers. So you all have started an initiative with the World Health Organization that is trying to help these communities kind of convert some of their lands from opium to roses. Tell us about that and how, how that came about. It's phenomenal. So we do work in conjunction um, with different organizations around the world trying to look for opportunities where we can help out and also, you know, so we can grow things in a very sustainable kind of way. And, you know, like you were saying, so much of the world's heroin supply comes from these places like Afghanistan. 80% of the world's heroin supply actually comes from Afghanistan. Um, So it's great to be able to identify these opportunities where, you know, one, you can be lifting people out of this trade and then providing an alternative means of securing a good livelihood for them. But then also, you know, it impacts us. Like, we're able to have access to these beautiful, fragrant flowers that grow you know, they need an environment that's similar to the poppy, to opium. So, you know, we need somewhere that's close to the equator and it's very warm because we get a longer harvest from them. Mm-hmm. So it's great to be able to kind of kill two birds with one stone and, you know, have all these sustainable, organic and biodynamic farms and also contribute to humanity as well and to these specific communities. So um, two of our biggest ones, actually, there's one in Turkey um, and we've had a huge impact there. So there's 320 mountain farmers that adapted this organic cultivation um, that we led them through. There's 200 extra farmers in the lower-lying regions of Turkey. Um, And we've seen this significant contribution to securing their livelihood of all of the local families in these areas because they have an alternative means of working, which is just so wonderful. Um, And it's also so beautiful because, you know, rose growing and rose harvesting is this beautiful, traditional, and also very (laughs) labor-intensive Like yes. industry for them, yes. and it's been around forever, and so it's really nice to kind of reintroduce that um, because it's it's what they grew up doing. But you know, opium is just so much more fruitful economically. Yes, yeah, you can't just replace it with something that's just going to give them a sort of subsistence level. You know, right. it's hard to pull them away from that, as you said, very lucrative crop. And I'm really glad that you mentioned that there's history there. The, the damask rose has been grown. That is where it's been grown for centuries, if not millennia, you know. Exactly. So it's great to, to bring it back to them and make it work for them again. I know. You know. It really is an impacting so many people along the way, which is amazing. And so what we do is we'll go in and we'll help with all of the costs and also the knowledge for all the agricultural pieces that go into it, um, the technical pieces, and then also all the organic consultations. And we'll help get, help them get set up to be organically or biodynamically certified. Um, ah. And then we also guarantee them 10 years of business 
and we'll buy all of the oil, um, rose oil from them for that period of time, and then they can open it up to trade with whomever they choose. And the only criteria that we have is that they maintain the same quality and standards and farming practices, so then our consumers will get the same thing today as they will in five years' time, in 10 years' time, in 15 years' time. So they're not just growing the roses, they're processing it too there. So they're, it's Sometimes, a full chain. Yeah, yeah that's great. Mm-hmm. That's really great. So, okay. I, besides loving um, Julie Andrews and obscure and <laughs> esoteric musicals, I also love statistics. <laughs> so um, tell us a little bit about um, you know, some of the best-selling products um, that, the, that the company um, produces and some of your own personal favorites. Oh, my God, I could talk about this stuff all day. Well, the Rose Day Cream is definitely the number one international bestseller for us. Um, we actually had the our poor little warehouse had a small freak-out moment a few months ago. <laughs> Jennifer Lopez mentioned that Rose Uh-oh. Day Cream was her favorite moisturizer, which for us, we're just like, oh, that's lovely, that's fantastic, because we don't pay anyone to, to offer these opinions right. and to say lovely right. things about Hashka. And it was so funny within, you know, a week, less than a week, we just sold out of months and months of product. And the warehouse was just like, what is going on? We're like, Jennifer Lopez. Mentioned <laughs> <Sorry>. it. <laughs> <laughs> and what a better spokesmodel. I mean, her skin is like... It's beautiful. Yeah. It's so it's so beautiful. And we actually have this huge celebrity following because all of these makeup artists and people behind the scenes on movie sets and TV sets, they all use Hauschka because it's just so soothing and fortifying for the skin for these people that are in and out of makeup day after day after day, sometimes several times a day, and that's how it's introduced to them, which is amazing. So that's really nice. So Rose Day Cream is definitely up there. Okay. It's a firm favorite. Um, I love the cleansing cream, and it's a really sweet story. So it's this almond meal paste that you use to cleanse and exfoliate your skin, and you just press it and roll it onto your skin rather than scrubbing like the, the exfoliants that we have today. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was actually this recipe of Elizabeth Sigmund's grandmother, so she was able to make a few different sort of changes to it, but it's still essentially the same. It's almond meal paste and five brightly colored herbs, and it's really beautiful, and that's one of our bestsellers as well. I've um, tried that as well. It's great. When you're done cleaning your face with it, it doesn't feel stripped. That's what's really cool it about it. You know? Yeah, and that's what, with all of our products, it, it's the same. You know, We're looking to maintain the barrier level of the skin and not disrupt anything that should be occurring naturally. And a little bit of natural oil on the skin is so vital. You know, It's so protective and we need it. So we're not looking to remove that. We're just looking to remove excess. So it's a different way of thinking about exfoliating and caring for the skin. Um, so it's really, it's really, really beautiful. Um, ooh, and my personal favorite... I love our hand cream. It has biodynamic calancho in it, which is called Mother of Thousands. Oh, yes. Um, I know that plant. It's a great little house plant. (laughs) Yes, yeah. But it's it's got this amazing, you know, water sealing quality and reproductive quality. Um, It's beautiful. And so it soaks right into your hands, and you're left with really hydrated, smooth hands, but without, like, little fingerprints all over everything. It just absorbs so rapidly, Mm. and it kind of helps the skin maintain its moisture. So you're not feeling like you have to reapply it all of the time and you can go about your work without leaving little smudges and fingerprints from just, you know, topical oils sitting on top of the skin. So right. that's that's another lovely one. And probably the, let's see, probably the clarifying day oil. That's the one that speaks to me because it really worked for my skin. Mm. Um, it's a different kind of concept, but I feel like a lot of other companies are really kind of embracing it and going towards this now. But it's the concept of using an oil on your skin when you have an oily skin. 
Um, so it's kind of like a homeopathic principle of like treats like, and it's this composition of different oils. So you put a small amount on your skin, it sends the signal to the sebaceous, to your oil glands, saying that you know there's enough oil on the skin, we don't have to produce any more. So over time, it starts to train and calm down your sebaceous gland. So it kind of tricks it into producing less. And by doing that over time, you're kind of training it in the long term. So you're not producing too much oil. So it's for people that have an excessively oily skin and just helping your body to find its natural rhythm because we really believe that all skin conditions can become normal. There's just something small that's out of balance, whether it's you're producing too much oil, if you're oily or too little oil, if you have a dry skin, you know, there's always a way where you can find a state of center and balance. So you're sort of trying to get at the the root cause of the symptoms, not just masking the symptoms, whether you have acne or, as yeah, you said, extra oily exactly. skin. I there's have, no quick fix. There's no, no quick fix. No. Well, we're coming to the end, but I had one more question. Um mm-hmm about the company, it's obviously evolved over the decades a lot. Um, Tell us a little bit about what's coming up in the future and what events and programs that some of our listeners um, can look forward to. Our listenership is from all over the world. That's the beauty of the web and podcasting. Um, So tell us what's new and and what's coming up. Well, we just released a beautiful night serum um, just a couple of months ago, and that was a little bit over five years in the making. So something that's really unique and interesting about Hashker is that, um, you know, we're not a trend line. So what you can expect from us today, you can expect from us in 50 years' time. So we're not going to be that company where whenever there's a new trend, we're jumping on the bandwagon and we're producing all these different products. We're really focused on long-term skin health. Um, And so, you know, what you see from us now, we're a sustainable company, so you can still expect that in future decades. Okay, great. And um, where can people... I know that a lot of different places, besides the web, your own website, that people can buy the products. Can you tell us a little bit about the kinds of shops and, and places that people can buy the line? Yeah, um, so you can find us in Whole Foods. You can find us in select CVS stores that have a dedicated beauty advisor that can help you learn about your skin and learn about the line. Okay. Um, we're also found in spas and bath and beauty boutiques as well. Okay, great. Well, Mandy, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time um, and and sharing. I'm, you know, my skin is so much better for having found Dr. Hauschka. Thank you so much for being on We Dig Plants. You are welcome. Thank you so much. Okay, so you've been listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Today's engineer was Liz Smith. Today's break music was provided by the beautiful and talented Odetta Hartman. The theme show, the theme song to our show is by Paul Andrew Watling. And a big thank you goes out to our sponsor, Eat on North. So thank you for tuning in. If you like what you heard, tell your friends to subscribe to the show on iTunes and feel free to get in touch with us at heritageradionetwork.org. Coming up is a short clip of All in the Industry with Sherry Beyer. Thanks for listening to We Dig Plants and see you in the garden. We determined that people want to know why and how of, of food. Not so much just instruction recipes. They, they want to get something and learn something. On episode 61 of All in the Industry, Justin Warner joins host Sherry Bayer to explain the secret principles behind his offbeat culinary creations. And so they said, you know, foie gras donut, for example. I mean, why on earth did you make that? It's, well, 
I mean, it's a long story, but um, I, I knew it would go together. I mean, it's kind of like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And they're like, wait a minute. Peanut butter, you're telling me that a foie gras donut is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I said, yeah, I mean, so is pizza. They're like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, of course. Like, it's about fruit and fat and having some canvas to spread it on. I mean, the foie gras is fat. Peanut butter is fat. Cheese is fat. Uh, tomatoes are fruit. Jellies are fruit. PB&J, you know, Farga Donut, it, it's all there. P- pizza. So I determined that the law of peanut butter and jelly is something that is true and something that exists and it is real. And if you have uh, fruit, fat, canvas, you'll be fine. Yeah, so like another law is uh, the coffee, cream, and sugar law, which is kind of the idea if you have something bitter, uh, add something creamy, add something sweet. Uh, or you could just say fatty and sweet. So, I mean, if you think about coffee uh, or raw chocolate, you know, cacao is, is bitter as all get out. Um, it's one of the bitterest things that there is. Uh, but the second you add sugar and milk to it, it becomes milk chocolate. So that's kind of, you know, just a simple example. But, you know, if you look at, like, bitter greens, most of the time people add some sort of oily, fatty component and something that's subtly sweet to it. I mean, that's what makes great greens. To hear more from Justin Warner and special guest photographer Daniel Krieger, check out episode 61 of All in the Industry with Sherry Bayer. For more great shows on the hospitality industry, you can listen to all the episodes of All in the Industry available on heritageradionetwork.org. 